morning, Boulder Church. If anybody doesn't have a worship guide, uh, just raise your hand and uh, the deacons will bring you one. So this morning, um, the sermon is about engagement or engaging, and it's a second of a four-part sermon uh, series on biblical manhood. Last week, Jim Christensen talked a little bit about surrender and the importance of letting God have all of those parts of your life, not just the, the ones you want uh, that are convenient to give him, and uh, raising your white flag and saying, I can't do it, I can't do everything. This week, we're going to talk about um, engagement. So when I think of engagement, it makes me think of um, marriage, a relationship. When two people find each other and they start to date regularly and more and more and they stop dating other people, and eventually the relationship hits this point where they really want to uh, just be together and not have anybody else, and they want to be together forever. Uh, they want to be married. And sometimes this process from this consistent dating until uh, somebody is engaged can vary widely in how long it takes. There's these couples that go to Las Vegas and they meet each other and they're engaged the same weekend. Maybe a little bit ill-advised, right? Maybe they don't really know each other like they could. And then there's the couples um, who they date for this prolonged period of time. It goes on and on, years and years, possibly a decade. And the engagement just doesn't come. The commitment's not there. And sometimes we focus on the guy in these relationships, it seems like, in our society, that they fear commitment. They're not, they're not ready to commit, to go all in. And we don't want to be that guy, right? But sometimes I think we're that guy when it comes to God. We're not all in. We're... We're holding back. We're a little passive in our relationship with God. We're not committing. Does anybody else feel a little bit passive in their relationship ever with God? When I think of the word passive, I think of passive driving, but not with a cell phone or texting, which is kind of the, the thing that seems to be what we focus on these days. I think of my childhood. There's this guy in our church that was my hero. His name is Ted Ree. Ted Ree was about five foot nine. He had a balding head kind of like mine, but even more so. And he kind of had a ring of hair like this. And he grew it really long on the side. And he'd flip it over. And then he'd use a comb to kind of spread it out over his, fore over his head uh, so it wouldn't reflect the light like my head does. And uh, Ted was incredibly strong. So uh, when Ted was young, he immigrated from Norway to eastern Montana and he bought 14 square miles of land around Glendive, Montana. And uh, 14 sections, they call them. And he raised sheep on that land. And so Ted would go out, and he had to do a lot of lifting and heavy manual work that made him incredibly strong. And so one of the things he would do is he would fill up a 50-gallon barrel full of water, and he'd lift it by himself into the back of a pickup, okay? For those of you that need help with the math, that's over 400 pounds of awkward weight. It's not like a bar in the gym. And uh, so he was something else. Um, Ted would go to the bar, but not to drink. He was a Seventh-day Adventist, not to drink. He would go there because he liked to arm wrestle. 
right? <laughs> and he found peop willing people to arm wrestle with him uh, in the bar. And rumor has it that one time while doing this, he broke a man's arm, arm wrestling. And um, he liked to finish the act by jumping up on the bar table, the, the bar uh, itself, getting up on it and doing a backflip onto the floor. <laughs> and so I got to see Ted's strength firsthand uh, when I was in grade school. So Ted was about 70 years of age at that time. Of course, he was 70 years of age from the time I met him until when I was in college. So I'm not exactly sure when Ted was 70, but he seemed about 70. Um, and so uh, we were at our grade school, and we were all in the back of a Ford Bronco. There was about four of us kids. And Sue Hoffman was in the front seat. And I believe my brother was sitting somewhere in this vehicle as well. And for whatever reason, this Ford Bronco quit in the driveway. So it's a gravel driveway that's sloping slightly downhill. And so um, Ted decided he would push the truck back up to the school. And I can't for the life of me figure out why now. So Ted gets on the front bumper like this, and he's pushing this Ford Bronco, and he's really straining. It's really hard, and the truck is moving really slowly. And we hear him groaning out there. And for whatever reason, none of us thought to jump out and help him. So, so there he is. He's pushing this truck. And as he pushes us uh, 10 or 15 feet, we start to notice tracks forming in, this, in this, dirt, this dirt driveway. And the realization hits us. The tires are skidding. The emergency brakes are on. So Ted, Ted was something else. He was pushing a Ford Bronco with four kids up a hill with the emergency brakes on at age 70. So um, Ted had some things, though, about him that weren't so good, too. Um, Ted, um, we came home for, uh, from Sabbath, uh, for Sabbath lunch at the Rehouse, which we were staying there. My parents were off. Uh, I, can't, I don't even remember what they were doing. I think they were at a dental meeting. And my brother and I stayed with the Rees uh, when this happened. And so we were coming home for lunch. We walk in the front door, and there's Ted sitting there. He had beat us home from church. At the, at the dining room table, and there's a German chocolate cake there, the family dessert, and he has a fork there, and there's just a tiny little sliver of cake left. He's eaten the entire family dessert, right? So he wasn't good maybe at controlling his emotions and his desires and holding himself back, and he was sort of, yeah. So then there was the time we were going to camp meeting, and my mother, uh, my mother was driving us, and it was Steve and I, my brother, and Ted Ree, just the four of us. And we were driving up to camp meeting, and we stopped in Billings, which is the big town in Montana. At that time, it was 80,000 people. And um, my mom went into the mall to, to Hennessy's uh, to do something. And so it, it left Ted and Steve and I in the car. Now, Ted really needed to go to the bathroom, apparently. But a normal person would have gone into the mall, right? They would have taken the... They would have taken the time, the effort, they would have actively sought out a bathroom, but not Ted Reed. No. He, he found a little patch of lawn right by the car and went right there in the mall parking lot for all to see, much to my brother and my embarrassment. And then there was, uh, Ted had moved on from sheep when he was in his 70s, and so he was raising chickens. And so, he would go into town, and he would take a 
apple box, and he'd fill it up with these egg cartons of these eggs that he had, uh, thank you, uh, Jackie, for such a relevant children's story, with all these eggs. And um, he'd put them in the back of his pickup, and he would drive in um, to the Best Western Hotel where he'd sell his eggs. And so it was 90 degrees in the summer in Montana, and so he would have this corduroy jacket on, and then he would get in the truck, and he would roll up all the windows. He'd put the heater on high, all fan full all the way up, and he would start to drive 45 miles an hour on a 65-mile-an-hour road into town. And it got roasting hot in there. And inevitably, about two miles into this trip, he'd fall asleep. And so Scott, Ree, and I would ride with Ted, or the other days, Steve and Tim would ride in the truck, and so we'd take turns, and so this was Scott and my turn. And so he fell asleep, and so one of us, whichever was closest, would start to drive for him. And so we would drive for him for miles until we ran into either another car or we started getting close to town, which the, the rules of the road would sort of scare us at age whatever we were, seven, ten, something like this. And so we would wake him up, and then he would take over. He whoa, and he'd start to drive. So to say that Ted was a passive driver would be an understatement. But I've had my own problems with passive driving. Um, when I was in high school, I, um, I managed to get my learning permit during one of my breaks uh, from high school, from Mount Ellis Academy. And so I got my learning permit, and I did very little driving, because I was only home during these breaks, and I couldn't be driving at Mount Ellis Academy. And so another break, I managed to get my license, because six months had gone by, and I think that I was 15, as I remember this. And because the ages were a little younger in Montana, so that people could drive related to farm work. And so I had my license, but I had driven almost not at all onto a, on a road. And so now I was heading back from Bozeman to Glendive, so it's a 350-mile drive by myself, having driven just a few times on the road. So I had my, my station wagon all loaded up, my parents' station wagon, uh, with all the uh, boxes and everything, and I was heading home. And so I pulled out onto the freeway, and I thought of my driving with Ted as one of my experiences of driving um, and my other experiences. And I, as I pulled out onto the road, I got to going about 45 miles an hour, and I was white-knuckling the steering wheel. I was hanging on for dear life. I was watching the lines on the road right by the car like this. And uh, 45 felt really good for a while on that 65. And so then, after a few miles, I felt a little bit more comfortable, and I picked it up to 55 miles an hour. And slowly but surely, I got it all the way up to the speed limit, to 65. And I found that I started looking further and further out on the road, and that seemed to help. And, but I was so tense, I slowly realized, and I let go with one hand, and leaned back in the seat, and slowly relaxed as I was driving. And just about the time I was starting to really settle in, feeling like, I got this. I, I'm a good driver. I can do this. A box started to jiggle loose up here. And without thinking about it, as that box started to fall, I went like this. And as I looked back at the road, I realized I was all the way off the road. I was going 65 miles an hour in the shoulder of the road, just all the way out in the weeds. And so the first thing I did is I reacted quickly and pulled the wheel back like this as fast as I could, but nothing happened. And then I realized that was a bad move, pulled the steering wheel back, 
And I realized I, I would lucked out because I was floating on all these weeds in the shoulder of the road. There was really tall weeds and thick grass in sort of late May and June. And I was floating in the weeds so that my steering wheel hadn't done anything. So I slowed way down and just gently pulled back onto the road. So I really wasn't focusing on what I was doing. I wasn't really engaged in driving. I was focused on the box. Um, then there was the time that uh, I was in high school, and this is a couple years later, and I'm driving home from a movie uh, in Grants Pass, Oregon, and I reach down to adjust the stereo, and I look up, and I hit a car. He had run his red light, and so I checked that it was green light, fortunately, and then adjusted the stereo, and um, I hit him. And if I had been paying attention, I might have been able to actually step on the brake, and he might have just passed by. But no, I hit him and totaling, totaled my parents' car. Then there was the time when I was uh, going to Mybiden to visit my brother, and once again, adjusted the stereo and looked up and found myself half off the road. Followed the corner around and hit something and did $1,400 worth of damage to my parents' car. So uh, my parents' car really took a beating. Um, these were all different cars. Um, so I really had uh, issues being engaged in what I was doing, uh, focusing on what I was doing, making driving a priority. In October 2013, MIT Tech Review released a statement. Tests of Google's autonomous vehicles in California and Nevada suggest that they already outperform human drivers. There didn't used to be Google cars or Tesla cars. You used to have to focus on what you were doing or suffer the consequences. Passive driving is dangerous. Being passive can be a really undesirable character trait. So let's, uh, the word passive, so not reacting visibly to something that might be expected to produce manifestations of an emotion or feeling. Or the second definition I like even better, not participating readily or actively, inactive. So Peyton Manning, this fella, he didn't play a lot of games last season. He, uh, he had some sort of plantar fascial tear, and so he was out for a number of games. So Brock Osweiler was in, and at the beginning of those games, they have to register a player as active or inactive. So he was inactive. That meant if Brock Osweiler had gotten hurt, Peyton Manning couldn't have even come in for him. He was out. He was not in the game. I've had some times in my life when I was a little bit inactive spiritually. I wasn't in the game. I think of my college freshman year. Things were going great for me. I had done well in high school. I had gotten good grades. Um, I just finished being the ASB, uh, the, the associate student body uh, president uh, for Mount Ellis Academy. I went to college. I had a couple of little scholarships that I had for doing well on different tests. And um, there I was. Uh, I got a job in the weight room. I was working out a couple hours a day. I was really strong. And I had won the arm wrestling competition, just like Ted at Walla Walla. You know, I was very proud of that. Um, I, was, uh, I was a business major. And they had, this, uh, they had this competition, a Monopoly game competition, with all the business department. And I'd won. I had risen to the top of this monopoly and all these business peop uh, people. 
So I was really proud of that, and things were going great for me. And I didn't really think about God. And when people talked about being broken, I was like, what are they talking about? I couldn't identify. Things were great. So then I went, came upon some sort of hard times that I kind of got through that probably brought me closer to God. And then I, then I was back to things going great again, right? I, I got into medical school. And I spent nine years transitioning from becoming a doctor to becoming an orthopedic surgeon. Got into orthopedics, which is a really big deal for me at the time. And then um, ultimately got into this fellowship where I could do joint replacement. And so I had nine years where I was just focused on studying, just, you know, completely in a book <clears throat> or in the hospital. And my, uh, my other relationships suffered. My relationship with my wife, my relationship with God, suffered because they weren't getting the amount of time that they needed out of my life. And I call it my period of spiritual hibernation, right? My relationship with God just didn't grow, progress during that time at all. It, uh, I just took a break. And then there's my time at Boulder. I had these weeks where I'd sit on the back row um, and, you know, I unzip my little cover of my Bible and take out my Bible, right? Come to church go home, put it back in that little case, zip it up, right? And then I don't really think about God until the next week. And it's kind of, uh, it's a bit passive, wouldn't you say? I mean, how would Sherry respond if I did that with her? You know, Wednesday's date night, I'll see you next Wednesday. Let's, let's not talk, <laughs> right? It wouldn't go over very well. Um, so, how do we think that it's going to go over well with God? It doesn't make sense, right? A relationship like that, it doesn't work like that. So being spiritually inactive, does it, does it remind you of any passage in the Bible? It reminds me of Revelation 3, 14 through 21. This is the letter to the church in Laodicea. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say I am rich and I have prospered and I need nothing. This is like me in my college freshman year. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by the fire so that you may be rich, white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. So what does coming in and eating with him and he with me look like exactly? Right? It got me to thinking about being inactive is a little bit like being lukewarm. I wonder if the letter to the church in Laodicea could have been written to us here in Boulder. Are we inactive or passive in our relationship with God? How about as being a spiritual leader of our families? So what does being active look like in the Bible? I think of Abraham. He's 75 years old, and God tells him, get all your stuff together, get your family together, and move. And I'll show you where you're going when you get there. 
right? That's a little like us packing everything up in a U-Haul, heading, heading to the port and getting on a ship and not knowing where we're going until the ship arrives. It's radical, right? And Abraham did that. Abraham was a doer. And then later on, you know, God says, take your son Isaac and sacrifice him, and Abraham's there with a knife, right? Abraham, he, he would do the whatever. Then there's David. David took on a bear and a lion with a slingshot. Now, I had a little opportunity to have a skirmish with a bear of my own, right? I had a bear eat my sheep, okay, a little over a year ago, just right here in Boulder County. And the bear came and ate the sheep, and uh, my kids said, hey, there's a bear outside, and you got to see this. And I went out there, and sure enough, there was a bear, uh, and it, it was sitting there eating one of the sheep it had killed. And um, it sat there and looked at me, and there was this moment where it had to decide, am I going to go kill this person, or am I going to run away? And luckily, it chose to run away. And... Um, I was so shocked that I had not gotten a gun or anything else. I, I was just in shock that the bear could be at my house. And, um, and then later that night, we had, uh, we had the search and rescue, or I'm trying to remember what their name is. We, had Boulder, we called Boulder County, and they sent some people out, some police and some other people, and they had assault rifles and so forth. And they searched for this bear, and they couldn't find it. So they took one of the legs, and they made a live trap on our property to try to catch this bear. And they, they waited for it. And Teddy and I thought that that bear might come back and kill the rest of our sheep. So we got up on top of the barn with the only guns that we have, which were kind of pathetic. But So I had a 22, and my son had a 410 shotgun. And so we were up on the top of this barn waiting for this bear to come back. And um, you know, as I told this story at work and various places, Everybody kind of thought that maybe I went into this with not quite the right gun, the quite the right weapon, that a 22 and a 410 shotgun might not be adequate. But David, he takes on the bear with a sling, okay? So, and then we all know the story of Goliath, this giant behemoth guy. All the Israelites are terrified of him, but David comes out there with his sling and, and kills Goliath, right? So David was a go-getter. He was an active guy. And then we have passive people in the Bible. We've got Adam. So while Eve is sitting there being tempted by the serpent and taking that little piece of fruit, what on earth is Adam doing, right? Is Adam right by her watching, just observing her bite the fruit, and then she hands it to him? Or is Adam somewhere else in the garden? And what is he doing exactly? Well, he's being passive. That's what he's doing. And then we have Pilate. So... You know, they bring Jesus to him. They say, hey, we want to kill this guy. And Pilate says, well, I don't really find any fault in him. And they say, well, we still want to kill this guy. And Pilate thinks, I don't want to tick this crowd off. I think they could hurt me. And he, he goes and washes his hands, right? It's not my fault. Do what you have to do. Go ahead and kill him, right? Pilate didn't stand up and say, no, you can't do this. It's wrong, and you're not doing this. Pilate just kind of sat back and said, well, it's not right, but whatever. The Bible teaches that God doesn't like it when we're lukewarm. He doesn't want us to be inactive. He wants us to be active. So how do we know if we're being active or passive? Let's turn to Luke, the parable of the sower. Uh, Luke 8, 5 through 15. 
and it is page 596 in your little handy Bibles that are in the pew in front of you there. A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has an ear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what the parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so they may not believe and be saved. So the wayside, the devil distracts us and we don't notice God's leading. I'm too busy with meetings to talk, talk about God with my children, right? College football, church conflict, you know, it's a big game. We've got to stay home and watch college football. Um, we're not receptive, right? We run into atheists, people that don't, even, don't believe in faith, only science. They're, they're not interested. Going back to verse 13, we find ourselves with the rocky soil. And the ones on the rocks are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, they fall away. We believe, but temptation lures us away from follow-through. You ever go out, uh, you ever find yourself eating with somebody after church, discussing uh, the sermon that day, and find that you can't remember what it was about, right? You're like, it was really good, and uh, I, I don't remember, right? I think that's an example of that. Or the to-do list of your week, the, the, everything that you have going on in your week, uh, overwhelms whatever convictions you had when you left church. We tell the guy at work about church. He says he'll come, but he's too busy to get around to it. He never quite makes it. And then we have thorny soil. We, we find ourselves in verse 14. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. Cares, riches, and pleasures of this life. So this is going to hurt a little bit. This is going to probably fall, be a little bit too close to home. It certainly was for me. Thorns are things that distract us from God. And then if we can switch the slide here. I stole a lot of this sermon from Francis Chan's book, Crazy Love. So uh, I'm just going to confess that right now. Okay. <laughs> When we want God and a bunch of other, th other stuff, that means we have thorns. A relationship can't grow with money, sins, activities, favorite sports teams, addictions, and commitments are piled on top of it. Has your relationship with God changed the way you live? Do you see evidence of God's kingdom in your life? What are you spending your time, energy, and money on? Are you satisfied with being godly enough to get to heaven? 
Would you describe yourself as totally in love with Jesus? Or in other words, half-hearted, lukewarm, passive, inactive, partially committed? Do some words like that maybe fit better? So what does it look like to be lukewarm? Well, I think if we're lukewarm, we would attend church regularly, right? It's what good Christians do. We would give money to church and charity as long as it doesn't really hurt our standard of living. We would choose what is popular over what is right in a conflict. We would care more about what people think than what God thinks. We don't want to be saved from our sins, just the penalty. Right? We don't really believe that a new life with Jesus is better than the old one. We rarely share our faith with neighbors and coworkers. Right? We don't want to be rejected. We don't want to make people feel uncomfortable. Right? Inviting people to, to church, who knows, right? It might feel, they might feel uncomfortable talking about God here in Boulder, right? We gauge our morality or goodness by comparing ourselves to the secular world. We say we love Jesus, but we only give him part of our time, money, and energy. We don't let God control us. We love God, but not with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Total devotion is for pastors and missionaries, right? We love others, but not as much as ourselves. We love those who will love us in return, not those who can't return our love, intentionally slight us, whose kids are better athletes, or whom conversations with are awkward. We'll serve God and others, but there are limits of what we'll give of our time, energy, and money. We think much more about life on earth than eternity in heaven. Our to-do lists, next week's schedule, vacations, work, this is what we focus on. We rarely consider the life to come. We're thankful for our luxuries. Very few feel called to minister to the poor. We do whatever is necessary to keep from feeling too guilty, the bare minimum to be good enough. We're concerned with playing it safe. Focus on, on safe keeps us from risking and sacrificing for God. We feel secure because of church attendance. Good trees bear good fruit, right? Here we are. We do not live by faith. Savings, retirement, insurance, that's what keeps us safe. Ouch, huh? Is that a little bit close to home for anybody else? So if we can go to our next slide. Oh, you already did it, okay. It is not scientific doubt, not atheism, not pantheism, not agnosticism, that in our day and in this land is likely to quench the light of the gospel. It is a proud, sensuous, selfish, luxurious, hollow-hearted, church-going prosperity, right? Slightly out of order there. By Frederick Huntington in 1890. This isn't new, right? This has been going on for a long time. So who's the enemy? What is stopping us from spreading the gospel? Is it atheism, pantheism, pantheism agnosticism? Is it Catholicism? Is it other Christian denominations? Is it the non-denominational churches? Is it within our church, the emergent church, some would say? Maybe a sect of Adventism? I think we're the enemy by claiming to be active soldiers in God's army and we're sitting on the sidelines. Just like Peyton Manning, right? We're inactive. Maybe we're more like soldiers gone AWOL. We're missing or absent from the spiritual armed forces. So if we're missing, where exactly are we? What are we doing? 
Jim Bergen uh, has a quote that I want to use. Which would be a bigger loss, finding out God doesn't exist or finding out that all your savings is gone? Is your money too important to you? Tim Kizer, our greatest fear as individuals and as a church should not be of failure, but of succeeding in things in life that don't really matter. Are you putting your energy in the right direction? If you could have heaven with no sickness, all your friends, food, natural beauties, pleasures, no conflict, could you be satisfied in a heaven without Christ? Do you seek Christ or the material possessions of heaven? We go to our reflection questions. These are the questions that we're going to have in our Sabbath school uh, this week. And the first is, are you active or passive in your relationship with God? What are the thorns in your life? Are you succeeding in things in life that matter? Is it Jesus we seek, or is it the material possessions of heaven? So what does being engaged look like? If we go to Revelation 3.20 and just read that last text. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. So what would it be like if he was eating with us? What does that mean exactly? What, what would that be like? I think we'd be spiritually obsessed, is what I think. I think we'd be on fire for Jesus. I think we'd be like the good soil that we haven't quite gotten to in our um, passage in Luke 8.15. As for that in the good soil, there are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. So I think that would look something like this in our daily lives. We would give freely and openly without censure. We would love those who hate us. We would not be consumed with personal safety. We would care more about God's kingdom coming than our own comfort or safety. We would live lives that connect us in some way to the poor. We would be more concerned about obeying God than the status quo. We would do things that don't always make sense in terms of success and wealth. We would know that the sin of pride is a constant battle. We would know that you can never be humble enough. We would not consider service a burden. We would take joy in loving God by loving his people. We would be known as givers. We would genuinely think others matter as much as we do. We would think about heaven frequently. We would orient our lives around eternity. We'd have a committed, settled, passionate love for God more than any other thing or person. We would be raw and honest with God. We would have an intimate relationship with God nourished throughout the day. Saturday wouldn't be enough. We'd be more concerned with character than comfort. We would know that true joy isn't from circumstances or environment. It's a gift from God. We'd continually say thank you to God. We would know that you could never have intimacy trying to pay God back. We would know that we can't work hard enough to be worthy. We would revel in, a, in our role as a child of God. We'd be strong enough to let go and let God. We would trust God as leading even when we didn't know all the answers. Being active is seeking Jesus. So this last month, Nancy Reagan, been a lot, you know, a lot of stuff on the news about her dying. 
and uh, her life and, and President, uh, former President Reagan's life. And I think back, what I remember of President Reagan, which isn't a whole lot, um, but I remember this clip of him coming out of this hotel in a sniper shooting him, right? And the Secret Service jumping in front of him, you know? They were willing to take a bullet for him. They, they crowded around him so he didn't get shot a second time, which is probably why he lived. And many of the, the Secret Service definitely did get shot in the process. They did take a bullet for him. And what, what selflessness, right? Jumping in front of somebody else so that you'll get hit instead of them. But there's somebody that took a bullet for us, right? Jesus took a bullet for us by hanging on the cross when he didn't do anything wrong. He cares about us. He wants us. It's not just the Marines looking for a few good men. It's not just every girl's dorm. God is looking for a few good men and women. Are you man enough to step up? Will you fulfill not your purpose, but God's for your life? Are you ready to pray that dangerous prayer? Lord, show me your will. Wherever you lead, I will follow. I've made some pretty big mistakes. I've been very passive in my relationship with God. I'm sure many of you feel the same way. But God has grace enough for me, for you, for us. All of our promises that we make, when we try to focus on what we're doing and I've got to do better next time, our promises are like ropes of sand focusing on what doesn't work. We can't work hard enough to get anywhere. It's not in our power, even if we're like Ted, right? We can't do it or what. What must I do to be saved, right? We can't do what or it. We can't save ourselves. It's not what, it's who. We got to stop talking about what. We got to start talking about who. Biblical manhood is seeking Jesus and not letting anything stop us. True manhood is found after putting Jesus first. True manhood is actively living out our faith. We need to be engaged in seeking Jesus for ourselves, our families, and our communities. If we're really engaged, it's going to rise to the top of our priority list. It has to. Like this sermon. This sermon's been at the top of my priority list for a while. I couldn't forget that I had a sermon yesterday or the day before or the week before. I didn't have to put it on my little um, phone, right? My little calendar. No. I knew that I had a sermon today. It was on my mind. It was always on my mind. Jesus is knocking on the door. He wants to come into your life to be with you. The only question is, are you ready to get off your spiritual sofa and open the door? Are you ready to engage actively seeking Jesus starting right now?